This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, I just want to say uh, at the beginning of this, it was really, I think, uh, refreshing that uh, I was actually asked to return to some of uh, the ideas that initially got me interested uh, in Islamic studies. Um, right now, I'm doing uh, things that are, are very different from uh, what I'll be speaking to you about today, um, uh, which is I'm working on uh, gender uh, and law. But this was, I think, a really a good opportunity for me to go back uh, and think about what it is about the field that uh, I thought was uh, important uh, at the very beginning and why uh, I think a case should be made for the academic uh, study of Shiism. Um, so, as perhaps you all know, uh, Shiism, uh, that is the distinction between Shiism and Sunni Islam, is perhaps the oldest and most enduring historical, political, and theological uh, uh, distinction or division in Islamic civilizations. Uh, the historical origins of the Shi'i community has been the subject of ongoing disagreement between so-called Western scholars and traditional Shi'i chroniclers and hagiographers. Shi'ism in its earliest uh, manifestations, um, and let me see if this works. Is there an image missing? Oh no, there is an image missing. Um, at any rate, Shi'ism in its earliest uh, manifestations revolved around uh, the idea of wilaya or loyalty or absolute attachment and support for the Prophet Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law Ali to succeed the Prophet as legitimate ruler and interpreter of the religion for the community. Shi'i doctrine projects the existence of this form of Shi'ism back to the Prophet's demise or even before. And in fact, there is growing academic support for this view among scholars in Europe and the United States and relatively recent works by Wilfred Madeline, Patricia Crona, Martin Hines, have found support for traditional Shi'i accounts in the historical record. In any case, uh, there's general agreement that Shi'ism existed as a coherent and distinct point of view with a recognizable identity from the formation of the first Islamic polity. And in less than 30 years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad by the first civil war, that ultimately culminated with the murder of Ali, it was clear that the Shi'at Ali, or Ali's party, uh, um, um, represented a distinct community that expressed not only its political and military aspirations, but also involved claims to religious authority. Now, Islamicists have tended to ignore the religious dimension of early Shi'ism and in fact reduce the conflict to issues revolving around the nature of uh, the, the, um, the successorship to Muhammad. And in fact, sometimes uh, more generously attribute it to an issue of personal allegiance to Ali and his descendants. Moreover, scholars have anachronistically represented Sunnism as a clearly established and unified position that existed as a kind of orthodoxy against which the alternative positions struggled for legitimacy. So what I'm saying here is it is almost, at least in the scholarly imagination, this idea that 
there was some kind of consolidated Sunnism that fell from the sky, ready formed, full of all of the kind of doctrinal assumptions that we associate it with today. So that it's become a kind of established position in scholarship on Islam to provide, to define the parameters for discussion of Shiism by describing it oppositionally and seeking to demonstrate the ways in which it diverges from the pure, quote, orthodoxy of what has come to be the Sunni majority. Shi'i Muslims, of course, do not primarily define themselves oppositionally. Rather, the Shia have always considered themselves to be an integral part of the fabric of Islamic religious communities and, in fact, claim to represent the most elite community of the faithful from within Muslims at large. So to dismiss uh, Shi'ism as a kind of dangerous heterodoxy that deviated from the mainstream of Islamic thought and practice is to misunderstand the fundamental nature and development of early Islamic society. So the idea of Sunnism itself, or uh, as it was uh, early known in the early period as the Al-Sunnah Jama'ah, or the people of custom and community, this idea itself was not articulated until roughly the latter part of the second century Islamic. So one of the founding principles of this idea of the people of custom and community was the articulation of this doctrine of the first four Khulafa, or the Khulafa of Rashidun, the rightly guided caliphs, that is Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, uh, as being the kind of prototypical models for the community to follow and so on. Now, rather than represent a kind of majority consensus at the time from which the Shia di uh, deviated in recognizing Ali, the very articulation of this foundational Sunni principle was in fact an explicit compromise between the earlier non-Shi'i recognition of only the first three Khulafa as the ideals of the Islamic uh, leadership uh, on one hand, and the Shi'i insistence on the sole legitimacy of Ali and his tenure as the caliph on the other. Okay, so that this very idea of the Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah comes as a kind of theological compromise with this competing idea of Ali as being the sole legitimate representative of the caliphate. So that it's important to note the ways in which the uh, there is, and it always struck me, I think, is strange that Western scholars who have essentially no interest in involving themselves in internal theological debates between Sunni and Shi'i have so readily adopted uh, um, the dominant Sunni narrative about how this process occurred. So it's important to note the ways in which the earliest Western scholars writing about Islam tended to use uh, these categories of heresy, orthodoxy, church, uh, and so on. So when they thought about inquiry into non-Christian religion, the sect, cult, church typology lent itself very easily uh, to the very sources that 19th and early 20th century Orientalists sought to study Shiism. The principal sources used by Western scholars of Islam were at that time, and they continue to be predominantly Sunni chronicles and heresiological literature. So on the basis of these sources, it would seem almost intuitive to represent the perspective of the Sunni majority as corresponding to, quote, Orthodox Islam 
and the Shi'i point of view is that of a heter heterodox sect. And in fact, one of the first Western scholars to address the nature of Shi'i religious beliefs and practices, that is the late 19th century, uh, century Orientalist Ignaz Golzir, in fact defined as a, quote, sect in the Islamic context, any group that, quote, departs from the Sunnah, the historically sanctioned form of Islam, one of the essential issues of fundamental importance for all Islam, and on such issues contradict the ijma' or the consensus. Perhaps as a result of the theological predilections and analytical categories employed by the founders of, academic, of the academic study of Islam, that is nearly 100 years after Golzir first laid those words to pen, many Western scholars of Islam continue to rely upon Sunni polemical sources uh, and heresiographical literature for inquiry into Sunnism, Shiism. So it's important to recognize that reliance on largely hostile Sunni sources and heresiographies in particular may lead one to overestimate the importance of extremist elements within Shiism or the Hulat, or fringe elements within the Shi Shia, uh, whose views are actually given far more attention in this literature than they are likely to have had among their contemporaries. So in fact, Golzier actually refers his readers to heresiographical literature for, quote, proofs that Shiism was a particularly fecund soil for absurdity suited to undermine and wholly disintegrate the Islamic doctrine of God. Okay. So when one thinks about how quickly the architects of uh, what we inherited of the Orientalist tradition quickly assumed a kind of preeminent Sunnism, I think we're in desperate need of an alternative framework. Uh, and I think that a more elucidating framework to understand these divisions is to think of these these ideas. Oh, wait, let me make sure my. I actually thought about these slides um, and thinking about how this typology developed and couldn't help since I came to Villanova to include a more <laughs> recent book um, actually comparing Roman Catholics and Shi'i Muslims. This is actually um, reflects one of the earliest ways in which scholars wrote about it. In fact, the first book published on Shiism in 1903 by a British scholar, um, McDonaldson, uh, of Irish descent, British of I Irish descent, um, uh, was called The Quranic Christians. Uh, and I think the subtitle was The Christians of Islam. So there was always this idea that there was something particularly suited to comparing, uh, in, in fact, uh, Catholicism and Shiism in particular. Okay? It, on the surface, there are all of these things that seem to be compatible. Structured religious hierarchies, uh, a kind of informal clergy with titles and rankings and so on. So it was all too neat and all too seductive for these early Orientalists to uh, resist. Uh, at any rate, um, the alternative. Um, I think a more elucidating framework is to think of them as, that is, Sunnism and Shiism as two branches or streams of thought in Islam, of course a varying size, both of which can be regarded as authentic expressions of Islamic piety. These streams should not be envisioned as proceeding in paths of clear divergence from one another, rather the two converge at many points intellectually, politically, and historically. 
It becomes clear upon detailed examination and analysis of heresiographical and polemical literature from both sides that it's not a matter of two streams progressively subdividing into numerous small rivulets of thought. Rather, the Sunni-Shi dichotomy is more accurately compared to a series of small tributaries which eventually coalesce into two streams that we recognize today as Sunnism and Shiism. Okay? You see, I got carried away last night with the water metaphors. Um, with relatively few exceptions, most studies addressing Sunni-Shi'i relations begin and end with the formative period of Islam. Okay, so that it, this idea of trying to find this quest for origins, and I, I somewhat facetiously call this talk the origins of Shi'ism because I actually think it's a, a rather absurd prospect to think that we can identify a discrete moment in time where there's the genesis of something and it happens in this one fail swoop, but rather we should think about this process evolving in this kind of dialogic, imaginative way where people are actually trying to work out their identities in the way that I think we as enlightened 21st century think people think about it, which is I'm not me, I'm me because I'm not you, and these kinds of discursive exchanges occur so that we create ourselves in these ways in which we try to recognize each other. Okay, so I hate to sound too much like Lacan, but you know, especially since, or, yeah. At any rate, this kind of emphasis on the early period uh, is problematic so that, one, it ignores subsequent developments and relations between the two communities. And so part of what I've tried to do uh, in, in my work is to look at these communities beyond the formative period in concrete historical circumstances and geographical locations. And when one does, contrary to the narratives articulated by scholars who attempted to generalize about Sunni-Shi'i relations in all times and places, when viewed in concrete social and political circumstances, there's a great deal of overlap, in particular in jurisprudence, in fiqh, in theology, kalam, and in philosophy. So, the social historical approaches better illustrate the degree of diversity and difference tolerated in pre-modern Islam. Both as Shia and Sunnis continue to engage in the self-conscious process of defining the nature, spiritual significance, and the boundaries for community membership. A particularly fascinating, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, a place to think about this um, is has been Baghdad. So a large part of my early research was centered around looking at Baghdad as this site uh, of interaction and exchange between Sunni and Shi'i Muslims. Um, and here uh, you see in formal and in informal structures the, in, for the transmission of knowledge. And I'm sorry about my mm -hmm. di Arabic diacritics. They just became something strange. Um, at any rate, Baghdad was an important place when one looks at learning and uh, study across sectarian lines. So that when we look at learning in a particular historical context, uh, and, and for me that was the 7th and 8th centuries, um, and look at a variety of different genres of literature, including biographical dictionaries, chronicles, Awqaf, endowment deeds, Islamic legal uh, texts, theoretical texts, polemical treaties, ijazat or teaching permissions, um, genealogical works, 
uh, essentially anything uh, I could get my hand on, you see a much more nuanced picture uh, of what's taking place, um, especially once you get beyond the kind of go-to historical sources, which are chronicles and so on. <coughs> so these medieval uh, sources abound in references to Shi'i scholars participating in Sunni educational circles, both as students and teachers, in actually formal institutions of learning, madaris, and in, in study groups. Uh, and in many cases, uh, the Shia attempted to conceal their identities um, uh, by practicing taqiyya. Uh, and then there are other cases where people openly studied in both private and public contexts. Uh, for example, uh, I looked at all of the entries in um, Kamal ad-Din Abdul Razak's uh, Ibn al-Fuwati's Majma' uh, al-Adab fil Mu'ajjam al-Alqab, which I love to say because you know, every Arabic book title rhymes, uh, which is nice. Um, but when I looked at the uh, entries for this uh, book, I was able to confirm that nearly half of the individuals recorded in this biographical dictionary um, had studied with one or more uh, um, were Shia who had stat uh, studied with one or more uh, Sunni teachers. So what the literature seems to indicate is that both before and prior to, and again, my diacritics uh, didn't show up, but prior to the invention of the ma madrasa <coughs> as a formal institutions of learning, um, there are uh, studies which show that in madaris, masajid, kanakas, um, which were endowed by solvent individuals, um, and through endowment deeds that, well, here's an example. Let me give you a quote from uh, one of our neighbors here who taught for many years at UPenn, um, uh, George Maktesi. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if mm -hmm. anyone here remembers him. Uh, he says about this, quote, institutional structures of education, whether madrasas, masjids, kanakas were endowed by individual founders in their capacity as solvent individuals, the Islamic law of waqf makes provision for endowments by individuals, not states. He adds that principally established according to juristic affiliation of their benefactors, madrasas tended to be exclusive institutions admitting students who belong to one or more juridical madhab to the exclusion of all others. A student who enrolled to receive a stipend from the endowment funds of the madrasa had to declare an affiliation with a particular Sunni madhab. Okay, I think he's wrong. So, <laughs> so, however, if one actually looks very closely at the endowment deeds of the Sunni Madaris beginning in the seventh century, uh, that included all of the Sunni um, schools uh, in Baghdad, one sees that the requirement to declare affiliation with a particular Sunni Madhab is not applicable for non-resident students. Uh, and in fact, most of the students who enrolled in these institutions didn't actually live there. So. In one hand, he's right, uh, but on the other hand, he's talking about a relatively small percentage of students who actually studied in these institutions. So the recognition of the exclusive nature of the madaris as endowed institutions suggests one of the possible reasons that if a Shi'i decided to study there uh, through patronage, they would opt to conceal their religious identities uh, if they wanted to live there as resident students. Otherwise. Uh, there are large numbers of Shi'i students who enrolled in 
what we think of as exclusively Sunni Madaris. So, in fact, when this idea of the Sunni revival itself is considered to be a period in which Sunni scholars sought to establish a unified Sunni Islamic community by blurring the lines between their various intellectual traditions and delimiting a commonly accepted form of Sunni Islam. Some even proposed that the Sunni revival was not only a period where major steps were being taken in the consolidation of Sunnism and the dissemination of its religious institutions, but also a time when the fluid society of the learned ulema began to emerge as a more defined and exclusive group. If indeed one accepts the argument that the Madaris functioned as institutions intended to develop the ideological cadres necessary for an alleged Sunni revival, one is left only to speculate about why such a revival and institutional structures were necessary. It's my contention that Sunni Madaris were often responses to the increased presence and participation of Shi'i scholars in the broader context of informal Islamic learning and therefore acted as mechanisms for competition for patronage as well as social and academic prestige among Sunni and Shi'i scholars. Okay, so that this isn't just happening in a vacuum, but in fact, the idea of a Sunni rival is necessitated by, con by competition over these patronage uh, networks. So I go on uh, and um, uh, uh, look at uh, other sources, including biographical dictionaries, which identify this happening um, not just uh, in uh, doctrinally marked things like hadith and study of Quran, but it's even less of an issue for Sunni and Shi'i scholars to study together in the so-called ulum uh, al-aqliya, the, the Greek or rational sciences, uh, as they were thought of, where the, the actual subject matter itself was doctrinally neutral, so one need not specify. So this kind of symbiotic exchange that was occurring uh, from all indications in Baghdad also uh, happened in other places. Um, and let me just get to the heart of the meat because I don't actually think you need all of my evidence. Um, but let's think about the idea of ijma' as a concept, the concept of consensus. So when one looks at the efforts of Sunni and Shi'i scholars to study together and formalize and even informal context of learning, the, for Sunni scholars, the potential threat to idealize normative social, cultural, and religious practice was not only an external concern, so that Sunni scholars often disagreed on points of law, theology, and many were subjugated to charges of violating consensus and subverting established doctrinal positions well until the eighth century of the Islamic period. And in fact, the efforts of the Sunni majority to limit the influence of Ibn Taymiyyah, considered by many modern revisionist historians to be the model of medieval Sunni traditionalism, attest to this fact. So Ibn Taymiyyah spends you know, a great deal of time in prisons. Uh, he spends uh, time in the citadel of Cairo, in, in the tower, and so on. Uh, and he's not unique in this respect. So the notion of consensus was developed as a legal doctrine designed principally to limit the indeterminacy inherent in the Islamic concept of legal authority. The doctrine of ijma, more plainly stated, argued that at a certain point, 
established Islamic doctrinal formulations and methodological perspectives were not permitted to be subject to any further investigation or consideration. Once a consensus is reached on an issue, the issue is considered to be permanently resolved. The doctrine of consensus proved to be, a, of course, a quite problematic notion. Although the majority of Sunni scholars of Islamic jurisprudence to some degree accepted the notion of consensus, they disagreed on whose consensus counted. The companions of the prophet, uh, the jurists, the general community, whose opinion actually uh, made up the consensus. They also agreed uh, temporally, uh, that is, whether the consensus of all jurists should be counted, the jurists of a specific geographical location, or only a jurist with specific qualifications and prerequisites. They also disagreed on how to verify consensus, for instance, whether the silence of a jurist on a particular issue could count toward the consensus. In addition, they disagreed on whether the consensus of one generation binds subsequent generations or whether consensus established in one region bound other regions. And more importantly, the majority of jurists recognize that refusing or, or denying a consensus does not establish one as a Kafir or an unbeliever. Uh, so that the contested issues surrounding the doctrine of consensus ultimately mean that uh, ijma functioned as a rhetorical device in polemics among various schools, most prominently in debates among Sunni and Shi'i scholars. However, the overemphasis on consensus obscures the degree of diversity present and tolerated among medieval Sunni jurists themselves, and in fact ignores the fields of religious learning in which Sunni and Shi'i scholars study together in relative cooperation. So ultimately, when one looks at the history of Sunni-Shi'i relations, consensus, at least as far as I'm concerned, functions only as a kind of abstraction, a rhetorical strategy designed to limit the opinions on the other side. It's, but it's, it's interesting that when one thinks about it today, people actually make arguments as if consensus is a real operative principle. I mean, there's this distinct kind of shift in modernity uh, in thinking about it, and I hope to say something about that uh, later. So. <coughs> One of the things as well, um, I don't want to tell you any more about that. Don't want to tell you about that. And I'm going to try and speed it along. So that if one looks at, imp more importantly, when one thinks about the development of this history as Shi'is responding to things that are occurring within this kind of, first of all, there's no evidence in particular places and particular times about what the demographics of communities were. So there's very little work that's been done about, say, in uh, Kufa, how many Shi'i Shia were there versus how many Sunnis were there. Or if you look in, say, a city like Najaf in the 8th century, what, which neighborhoods were Sunni, which neighborhoods were Shi'i, all of the kind of demographic information that we would need to talk about majority-minority status has yet to be determined. So a lot of the way we think about this kind of dominant and, ascendant, and ascendant Sunnism is a retrojection and anachronistic thinking based upon how things ultimately shaped out today. Um, 
So I don't want to talk to you about that, but I do want to talk to you about some of the conclusions of this pre-modern history so that I can hopefully have a more free-form discussion of some of the uh, modern issues. So if you think about what all of this pre-modern history of Sunni-Shi'i relations means, it means that research on relationships fostered between Shi'i and Sunni scholars as they pursued Islamic learning in shared context is important for the academic study of Islam for a number of reasons. One, it challenges the retrodection of present-day boundaries between Shi'i and Sunni relations into the historical past and highlights the changing dynamics between the communities across time and place. Second, research on pre-modern Shi'i-Sunni relations directly challenges the widely held notion that Sunni scholars successfully achieved a consensus whereby other Islamic religious expressions can be viewed as divergent. Hence, it directly illustrates in contest the contested nature of religious authority in Islam in concrete social situations and historical circumstances. Moreover, I think it provides a reconception of the major divisions in Islamic civilization that draws attention to the multiplicity of ways in which Shi'i and Sunni scholars were and continue to be linked to one another. It also attempts to provide an alternative narrative or reconception of the academic study of, re of Islamic religion by demonstrating the possibilities posed by using uh, certain alternative methodologies to actually interrogate the master narratives that we've received and the selectivity inherited from previous generations of Islamic scholars. Um, and I think that that's really what's essential about thinking about this problem. So that I've sort of given you a very quick overview of how these groups emerge, which differs from essentially every single textbook that you would get that would talk about the origins of these two communities. And almost every published work begins with conflict between uh, this kind of established uh, Sunni community and these partisans to Ali arguing for their political aspirations and then beginning uh, therein, which completely stands in the face of the sources that actually reveal a picture of people competing to discover who they are simultaneously so that the kind of proto-Sunni and proto-Shi'i communities came to know each other through discursive engagements, intellectual engagement, and even through this process of uh, um, political um, disagreements over time. But it wasn't a fail swoop, and this process unfolded over centuries. Even evidence about the Sunni revival, some six centuries from the formative period, demonstrates that these things were still in flux. And so that we can't separate these communities as these kind of distinct groups uh, until well into the modern period. And that has a lot to do uh, with uh, other kinds of um, processes, political processes and the imperial aspirations of uh, European nations and uh, the scholars who they produced. Okay? So that we see the same kind of uh, imperial discourses being reflected in the very emergence of the discipline of Islamic studies. And so I think that there is a particular, um, at least a call, a 21st century call to rethink how the canon gets formed, how scholars read the canon, and to use more critical approaches to thinking about what literature was used to create our very notions of what constitutes Islamic history. 
um, and, and it tends to be very narrow. Okay. Now, now, when one thinks about the modern period, um, I don't know. I, I wanted to conclude with that because, for instance, I'm constantly reading this literature about um, Sunnishi'i violence in the modern period. Even yesterday, I read an article about a group of American people who went to Hajj from Dearborn, Michigan, who are attacked by a group of Australian Sunnis. Um, uh, rape. One of the women was one of the women in the group was threatened to be raped. She was taken off. Um, the group was able to actually uh, get her back, but then they were beaten by uh, the Australian pilgrims, and all of this was captured on tape. The Saudi government then confiscated the tape, and the U.S. State Department has become involved in trying to retrieve the tape. So that even on a very micro level, you see these conflicts happening, even on something seemingly as benign as Hajj, where people go and one would think they would be able to cooperate. Uh, and this speaks nothing to the kind of, um, the kind of grotesque um, and extreme levels of violence and acrimony that we see happening in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, even, uh, of course, in Syria of anti-Shi'i uh, violence uh, in particular. So I gave you this kind of very kinder, gentler presentation of how things looked in the pre-modern period, but it does beg the question, and the question which I hope that one of you would ask, which is what happens, when does it change, why does it change, uh, and what does it all mean for thinking about who are the Shia and who are the Sunni? So I'll leave it at that and open it up.